Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 16, The Enigma of Pythagoras. Pythagoras, the father of philosophy. There are many mysteries to do with the lives of pre-Socratic philosophers, but Pythagoras' life seems to be one big mystery. Probably born sometime around 570 BCE on the Ionian island of Samos, we know almost nothing for sure about his early life. But at some point, probably around the year 530, he had to flee the local tyrant and moved to Croton in southern Italy. There he founded a movement unlike anything seen before in Greece, but with affinities to aspects of the mystery cult traditions, a brotherhood with a whole way of life all their own, practicing vegetarianism, and a whole range of strange rules and regulations, again with links to known mystic practices. They seem to have taken on the mystic tradition of silence as well, and our sources agree that the Pythagoreans were notoriously secretive about the teachings of their master, almost as though these teachings were mystic wisdom of the traditional sort. We're fairly sure that this early Pythagorean movement believed in an immortal soul and in reincarnation, including reincarnation into animal bodies. But aside from that, it's very hard to know what else they might have been up to. With some of Pythagoras' later followers, we do have more information, but there are puzzling and contradictory aspects to this somewhat later material as well. This episode is the first part of a Pythagorean trilogy. Here we will look at the earliest evidence for Pythagoras, the man himself, and Pythagoras, the myth, himself. Because it's very difficult, as we shall see, to separate the rich mythological detail we possess about Pythagoras from the historical evidence. In fact, in the first of many paradoxes we will encounter in the course of studying Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans, Pythagoras is the pre-Socratic philosopher about whom we have the most evidence, which survives, and simultaneously the one about whom we can actually say the least with any confidence. The man was an enigma even in antiquity, and remains an enigma today. As we mentioned in the foregoing episode, there's a lot we don't know about the pre-Socratic philosophers. We know most of what we do know through what's called the doxographic tradition. That's the tradition of quoting and discussing the teachings of earlier philosophers, which is sometimes carried out by later philosophers themselves, and sometimes by authors who are more like modern biographers than philosophers. Um, Diogenes Laertius, the third century writer of the lives of the philosophers, is a case in point. He's more of a biographer, really, and most of the evidence we're going to look at today is preserved by him. In many cases, we have only a few fragments of what the pre-Socratics wrote, assuming they wrote anything, and often these fragments are not direct quotations, but paraphrases, in which case we have to try to reconstruct the original, and this can be difficult if we have reason to believe that the person doing the paraphrase either didn't understand the original, and so paraphrased it wrongly by accident, or alternately had their own agenda and so paraphrased it wrongly on purpose. Another common feature of the doxographic tradition is that it often features legendary stories. These philosophers aren't just wise. In some cases, they have superpowers, or could do magic, or were the offspring of gods, stuff like that. Now, the case of Pythagoras is special in every way, and for him we need to understand that these two common characteristics of the doxographic tradition, the fragmentary nature of the evidence and the legendary material which gets attached to the philosopher's stories, are turned up to eleven. As we shall see, much of the evidence about the man Pythagoras comes to us from sources which contradict each other. And while we seem to have an early consensus that he didn't actually write anything, with a few possible exceptions which we'll be discussing shortly, 
there are numerous works from antiquity which traveled under the name Pythagoras. As for the legendary material, we have lots and lots of it, much of it totally amazing and bizarre, and tending in a direction much more of an ancient tradition of initiatory magic or religious practice than of what is nowadays thought of as philosophy. All of this has led to several radically different approaches to who the man Pythagoras might have been, and what he might have taught, and so on. Now, regular listeners to this podcast will be aware that this is not the place to come to if you're looking for simple answers to complex historical questions. If open-ended surveying of the evidence which ends in a kind of shrug of the shoulders frustrates you, you're going to want to stop listening now, because Pythagoras has been studied pretty much to the hilt by some of the finest classical scholars, and we're still in a situation where no one interpretation has won out as a standard view. Of course, this is true to some degree for every ancient philosopher. Aristotle, who usually aims to be dry and concise and unambiguous, still has some passages which are totally ambiguous and subject to intense ongoing debate. If this is true of Aristotle at, say, 3, for Plato we need to turn the dial up to 10. Plato wants to confuse us. But for Pythagoras, once again, we'll have to go all the way to 11, because he seems to have wanted to confuse people, plus we don't have any writings of his to go on. So in this episode, we're going to concentrate on our precious scraps of pre-Platonic evidence for Pythagoras. Now, why is it so important that these scraps are pre-Platonic? Because Plato himself makes use of Pythagorean materials in his own philosophy. And because Plato's achievement was so influential, later interpreters of Pythagoras and Pythagoreanism tend to read loads of Platonic and Platonist materials back into the Pythagorean past. Now, we're told by Aristotle that Plato Pythagorized. And this leads to a situation where the post-Platonic evidence for Pythagoras gets Platonized. Scholars agree that if we want to see what is really going on in 6th century Italy, we need to be super careful with later evidence because of this Platonist bias or lens through which later authors tend to interpret Pythagoras. The important possible exception to this is the evidence from Aristotle, which is of course a bit later than Plato's evidence, but which some scholars at least think preserves genuinely pre-Platonic Pythagorean materials. More about that next episode, when we look at Pythagoreanism, the movement which Pythagoras inspired in southern Italy. Are you confused yet? No? Give it time. So, on with our episode. Let's begin with our survey of the earliest evidence for Pythagoras. Possibly our earliest reference to Pythagoras by name comes from the trenchant Heraclitus of Ephesus, who will himself be the subject of a later episode. Heraclitus, who's sort of the the grumpy Nietzsche of ancient Greek philosophy, lived not much later than Pythagoras himself, from around 535 to 475 BCE. We think Pythagoras probably died sometime around the year 495 BCE, so they were actually contemporaries for several decades. Heraclitus tells us that, quote, learning, polymathy, does not teach insight. Otherwise, it would have taught Hesiod and Pythagoras, and moreover, Xenophanes and Hecateus. And by the way, in this episode, I'm using translations from The Pre-Socratics Reader by Patricia Kurd, which you'll find in the notes to this episode. We have another reference to Pythagoras from Heraclitus. Pythagoras, the son of Mnesarchus, practiced inquiry, historie, more than other men, and making a selection of these writings, constructed his own wisdom, polymathy, evil trickery. So what is Heraclitus telling us here? 
he's actually being pretty clear, which is unusual for Heraclitus. Firstly, it's clear that he doesn't rate Pythagoras. Both quotes mention what we can probably take to be a kind of book learning, as opposed to Heraclitus' own approach, which emphasizes learning from direct experience of the world. So he disses Pythagoras for this kind of learning, which he calls polymathea, and the term historie in the second quote can probably be translated as something like research, which is also seen as a flaw. So the idea is that Pythagoras is widely read erudite, but he's still a dummy. In fact, in the second quote, Pythagoras's thought is not just lacking in wisdom, it's positively deceptive, an evil trickery. So Heraclitus is lumping Pythagoras together with several other thinkers in the first citation. Hesiod, who is an epic poet who wrote the Theogony, a poem telling a version of the story of the genesis of the gods in the world. In other words, an authority on how things came to be as they are, but not a philosophic authority. Xenophanes, on the other hand, is an early pre-Socratic philosopher who also wrote poetry. Lastly, Hecateus of Miletus was a historian and geographer famous for having made an early attempt at a world map. So Heraclitus is mentioning a selection of all sorts of people who might be called learned in his time and dissing them across the board for their learnedness. In our second citation, too, Heraclitus seems to be saying that Pythagoras read a lot of books and sort of constructed his own system, quote, his own wisdom, polymathy, end of quote. But he also seems to be implying that Pythagoras's own constructed wisdom was also in the form of a book. Or at least that's what Diogenes Laertius thinks. He's the one that we've taken this quote from, the later author who collects these different quotes about Pythagoras. Interesting. Later authors mostly agree that Pythagoras wrote nothing down, but Heraclitus seems to be in the other camp. So Pythagoras is known to Heraclitus at least for being very learned. Okay. Now, as it happens, the Xenophanes mentioned by Heraclitus here also tells us a few things about Pythagoras. He lived from about 570 to about 475 BCE, and so really was a contemporary of Pythagoras. In one anecdote, he tells the story of a time when Pythagoras walked past a man who was beating a puppy dog. He said, quote, Stop, do not beat him, since he is the soul of a man, a friend of mine, which I recognized when I heard it crying. This seems to be evidence of the idea of animal reincarnation. The soul of one of Pythagoras' friends has ended up inside the puppy, and Pythagoras, being the wise sage that he is, can recognize his voice in the puppy's cries. Based on this and other evidence, we can add to our short list of genuine Pythagorean doctrines that of animal reincarnation. This is a very early attestation to that doctrine. This is backed up by another author called Eon of Chios, a dramatist and poet who also wrote what seems to have been a work of Pythagorean philosophy called the Triagmos, the Triads, most of which is lost to us. So in our first passage, Eon is discussing Phoresides of Syros, a very early pre-Socratic philosopher who's really fascinating in his own right, and we'll return to him in a later episode when we discuss early esoteric hermeneutics. But for now, we just need to know that Phoresides dies, and Eon gives him this elegy, quote, Thus he, Phoresides, excelled in both manhood and reverence, and even in death has a delightful life for his soul. If indeed Pythagoras was truly wise about all things, he who truly knew and had learned thoroughly the opinions of men. So here we have another attestation to an immortal soul, and one with a good fate awaiting it after death. We can probably assume here 
that this good fate awaited Pherecides because he was Pherecides, and that a bad fate might await someone of lesser stature, reincarnation as a bug or something like that. At any rate, we seem to have here the idea of the fate of the soul having an element of reward and punishment involved. And this is, incidentally, the first appearance of this idea in Greek philosophy, and it clearly derives from mystic teachings, teachings from the mystery cults. So we're starting to see a more coherent picture of an afterlife with attendant rewards and punishments in the form of reincarnations of different kinds. Now this is also backed up by a lot of later evidence, which we can't get into right now. We also get a rather more glowing assessment of Pythagoras's wisdom than we had from Heraclitus here. He's the one who was, quote, truly wise about all things, he who truly knew and had learned thoroughly the opinions of men, end of quote. So here we have the image of Pythagoras as extremely learned, but that's a good thing. Eon also tells us that Pythagoras published his own writings under the name of Orpheus. So we have here another early attestation to writings by Pythagoras, but traveling under the name of the legendary Orpheus. Hmm. Now we have a bunch of poems attributed to Orpheus from antiquity, and we're going to return to this Orphic connection in a later episode. But we can note here that this connection with the mysterious Orphics, so-called, is borne out in the 5th century by Herodotus, the father of history, who, in a discussion of the ritual practices of the Egyptians, tells us, quote, The Egyptians agree in this with those called Orphics, and with the Pythagoreans, for it is likewise unholy for anyone who takes part in these rites to be buried in woolen garments. So this is taken out of context, but what's being referred to here is a cultic prohibition on burying corpses in wool. So here we don't see Pythagoras himself, but rather the Pythagoreans. But note the connection not only to the so-called Orphics, as, as Herodotus calls them, but with Egypt. A very persistent feature of the legends about Pythagoras is that he traveled to Egypt and studied with the sages there. We also note what seems to be a totally non-philosophic detail a ritual prohibition of burying bodies dressed in wool. As we shall see, tradition associates many strange prohibitions like this one with the early Pythagoreans. Sometimes they have parallels with known mystery cult institutions, and they always remind us of the kind of prohibitions we get with the mysteries. So it's pretty clear that a fairly elaborate set of rules and regulations of this kind were a feature of the Pythagorean way of life in the early phase of the movement we're going to be calling Pythagoreanism. Now that's philosophy. Herodotus also tells us the following anecdote about the Egyptians at another point in his histories. Quote, the Egyptians were the first to declare this doctrine, that the human soul is immortal, and each time the body perishes, it enters into another animal as it is born. When it has made a circuit of all terrestrial marine and winged animals, it once again enters a human body as it is born. Its circuit takes 3,000 years. Some Greeks have adopted this doctrine, some earlier and some later, as if it were peculiar to them. And here's the kicker, check this out. I know their names, but do not write them. End of quote. Now this is great stuff. Firstly, everyone agrees that at least one of the Greeks meant by Herodotus here is Pythagoras. We have not only a doctrine of animal metempsychosis, but a cyclical metempsychosis. Plato, too, will argue for a cyclical pattern of reincarnation based on the cyclical movements of the stars, 
Now, we can't tell if the stars are what's meant here in Herodotus, but it does seem that a cosmic periodicity is involved in some way, in the way that the souls reincarnate, which is pretty fascinating. But why won't Herodotus tell us the names of these Greek thinkers? I take it that here, as elsewhere in his histories, Herodotus is making a nod to mystic initiations that he has himself undergone. He's privy to certain secret doctrines, which he is not at liberty to divulge, and he lets his readers know this fact. The fact that Pythagoras' teaching on reincarnation seems to be one of these secret doctrines is, is very difficult to interpret, but it surely points us once again in the direction of mystery cult and teaching when we try to figure out what Pythagoras' thought was all about. We have one more piece of evidence which we should mention, this time from Empedocles, another southern Italian, but from a later generation, who is himself usually seen as linked to Pythagoreanism, and more on him and his Pythagorean credentials in a few weeks' time. A fragment of Empedocles tells us, quote, There was a certain man among them who knew very holy matters, who possessed the greatest wealth of mind, mastering all sorts of wise deeds. For when he reached out with all his mind, easily he would survey every one of the things that are, yea, within ten and even twenty generations of humans. End of quote. Now, if this refers to Pythagoras, as is often thought, although Diogenes Laertius thinks it refers to Parmenides, another southern Italian about whom we'll be talking, we may have a reference to Pythagoras' wonderful ability to remember his own, as well as others' previous incarnations. That at least seems to be one possible interpretation of the lines, quote, for when he reached out with all his mind, easily he would survey every one of the things that are, yea, within ten and even twenty generations of humans. Now, Empedocles also maintained reincarnation. Of course, this quotation could mean something else entirely as well. It's good and mysterious, though, that's for sure. That is basically all we have about Pythagoras, which we can be sure is not influenced by Plato's thought. What have we learned? Well, Pythagoras, already within his lifetime, or soon thereafter, has reputation for great learning. Sometimes book learning, sometimes seemingly a kind of supernatural insight, but everyone seems to agree that he's very, very wise. He seems definitely to have taught a doctrine of animal and human reincarnation, which means we're on pretty solid ground if we add to his teachings an immortal soul of some kind. He's also able to recognize the souls of others who are reincarnated, as in the story of the puppy. He's associated in some accounts with Egyptian wisdom, and in some with ideas expressed by a mysterious group known as the so-called Orphics. There are a number of cultural tropes, from a ritualized practice of secrecy to strange cultic prohibitions, associated with the figure of Pythagoras, all of which remind us of the mystery cults. Now, have you noticed any conspicuous absences in this list? Where's the mathematics? Where's the geometry? Where are the cosmological theories? Where, for God's sake, is the Pythagorean theorem? We don't find any of this stuff in this early material, and this has given scholars huge headaches, but one thing at a time. If we take just this evidence for now, the earliest, earliest, earliest pre-Platonic evidence, even though lots of later evidence needs to be considered, and will be, let's try to get a picture of Pythagoras the man from just this early stuff, and see what we come up with. Well, we get more or less the picture of Pythagoras the shaman, which some scholars think is the accurate portrayal of Pythagoras. The mathematical stuff comes later, according to this reading. 
in a kind of offshoot of the Pythagorean movement which he founded. We'll dispense with the term shaman, which isn't particularly useful as a category. But listeners may recall that in episode 6, we interviewed Professor Daniel Ogden on the subject of the so-called Greek shamans, among many other things. And he came up with two key factors, which they all have in common, which I think are absolutely essential for this discussion and for contextualizing Pythagoras. One of these factors is that they're all soul manipulators. So let's use that term in preference to shaman. So what does a soul manipulator do? They can project their soul out of their body and go on voyages of discovery. Like Aristeas, who traveled to distant Hyperborea in the form of a raven and came back to write a poem about what he saw there. They can remember the transmigrations of their soul through previous cycles of life, recognize the past lives of others, as we've seen Pythagoras doing in the story of the puppy. They can suspend the functions of their soul so as to enter some kind of coma or trance. And while in this state, they may appear in another place. So this is kind of a feat of bilocation, which is often attributed to Pythagoras in later sources and to Pythagorean sages like Apollonius of Tiana. And there seems to be a persistent association with caves where the soul manipulator goes to detach his soul from his body and do all this journeying and whatnot. And a lot of evidence would seem to indicate that the soul manipulator on a cave retreat was journeying specifically in the underworld, which seems to make sense, as he's literally under the ground. And the Greek myths are full of examples of people going to the underworld in quest of knowledge, so there's a good tropological inheritance to draw on there. Now, the second common feature of this figure of the soul manipulator is that the traditions about them are always somehow connected with the name of Pythagoras. They are Pythagoras, they are Pythagoreans, they are written about in the writings taken to be by Pythagoras or by Pythagoreans, and so on. There's always a connection of some kind with Pythagoras. Now, the earliest material we have looked at doesn't contain anywhere near such a detailed array of different types of soul manipulators we've just described, but you'll note that everything we have heard about Pythagoras can fit more or less smoothly into this topos, that of the, the specialist in manipulating souls, while we've heard nothing so far which would lead us to think of a specialist in numerical speculation or geometry or anything like that. So we'll finish our first installment on Pythagoras on this note. I'm by no means subscribing to the Pythagoras was a shaman school of thought, Firstly, because, again, what is shamanism supposed to mean, anyway? And secondly, because, as we shall see next episode, the evidence from Aristotle, though relatively late, does actually point us in a direction where we can see how Pythagoras's thought probably did contain the seeds of the numerical mysteries for which he is famous. There is, of course, no contradiction between teaching reincarnation and the immortality of the soul, and perhaps engaging in some practical soul manipulation as well, and having a well-developed philosophic body of thought. And it seems clear that Pythagoras was both of these things, the holy man and the philosopher. In this episode, we hope to have introduced the earliest evidence in a way which will show listeners who are unfamiliar with Pythagoras both how little is really known about him from his near contemporaries, and how much of that little points us in the direction of a philosophic reworking of mystery, cult, and other religious tropes, rather than of some kind of proto-scientific number theory, which is another image of Pythagoras that has been very popular in the modern age. And this kind of transformation of mystery cult and the wider religious milieu is actually a wider phenomenon in our period, the 7th, 6th, 5th centuries, which extends beyond Pythagoras and the tradition which he founded. We see it in the poems known as the Orphica, 
and in the amazing Derveni Papyrus, which we shall be discussing, of course, we see it in Parmenides and Empedocles, the other South Italian philosophers whom we shall be discussing in upcoming episodes, and we see it in another radically transformed way in Plato. Now, I'd like to finish on a suitably mysterious note. Herodotus records another story in which Pythagoras is mentioned, and it's absolutely weird and fascinating. He himself claims not to believe this story. It's about the deity Zalmoxis, who is worshipped by the Thracian tribe called the Getai. Now, Thrace is the region more or less in the modern-day Balkans. This Zalmoxis, according to the story, was actually an ex-slave of Pythagoras. He tricked the Getai into believing in immortality by hiding in a cave for three years and then re-emerging. Presumably, the Getai were stunned and thought that he had returned from the dead or something like that. This is what Herodotus tells us next. Quote, Now, Zalmoxis had experienced life in Ionia and was familiar with Ionian customs, which are more profound than those of the Thracians, who are an uncivilized and rather naive people. Um, I should just say here that Herodotus is himself an Ionian, and this is perhaps no accident. After all, Herodotus continues, he had associated with Greeks, and in particular with Pythagoras, who was hardly the weakest intellect in Greece. Now, what are we supposed to make of this story? I cannot help but feel that this story is a very garbled account of a typical soul manipulator story. We have the retreat to the cave and the return, armed with wisdom gained in the underworld resulting in a new doctrine, in this case, the Getai's belief in immortality. Pythagoras seems to play no role except in connecting the story thematically with this tradition of soul manipulation. Now, I've mentioned that Herodotus claims not to believe this story, but his specific claim is not that it's totally made up or anything like that, it's that Zelmoxis lived before Pythagoras. In other words, he believes the story, he just doesn't believe the part about Zelmoxis having been Pythagoras' slave. Weird stuff, and a perfect place to leave this weird episode. I hope I've done a good enough job of balancing the essential data with the amazing sense of wonder which it inspires, and painted a fair picture of Pythagoras as someone part of a tradition dealing with the arts of the soul in a very old school way, and with the secret knowledge of its cyclical reincarnation. Tune in next week when we shall be discussing the enigma of early Pythagoreanism. And until then, don't be like Hippasos of Metapontum, who revealed the secret teachings of the Pythagoreans and was destroyed by the gods. It would be much better and much safer to stay esoteric. <laughs>